Good morning, everyone. Man, it's so good to see you all here. Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to hang out in our Bible study time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Grab your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along. If you're pretty brand new to church, didn't bring a Bible, don't worry. Everything that um, I read from Scripture will be on the screen. It'll be really easy to follow along. If you want to pull those notes out, that'll kind of work your way through the outline. For those of you who follow along on the app, remember if you have our Journey app, you can take notes on your phone and you can email them to yourself so that they're on your phone or tablet. If you ever want to pull this message up, share it with a friend, teach it in your own Bible study. It's pretty easy if you follow along on the app to kind of keep a record of everything um, on a computer. So uh, we would love you to do that uh, message two of a series that we're calling Jesus and Lessons in Faith. Before we do that, let me tell you um, kind of where we are and what's upcoming in our building process. We have five months to go before we move into our new building. You might remember that in December of 2019, we wrapped up a campaign that we call our Difference Makers Building Project to expand our footprint, to hold all of our church and to complete the things that we believe God was calling us to do. In this picture, the blue is what we're sitting in. The white is all new. If we kind of pull the roof off of it, our atrium and auditorium, if you've not got a chance to walk through that, please feel free after church. Be careful, Um, but go check out all that's going on. We're hoping that is ready for Christmas. We're keeping our fingers crossed. Um, It's not a guarantee, but as of right now, it's on schedule to be done for Christmas, so we're really hopeful for that. Um, This children's expansion in the back, these five rooms in this big auditorium, we think are going to be done next week, which allows us as we move into the fall to kind of make a a critical transition. So we moved into this building five years ago this month, um, and it was immediately too small. It's never held all of our church. We've tried to figure out how many services do we have to do and when to fit people in. We've done um, Sunday morning, Sunday night. We've done Saturday night, Sunday morning. We've been at Summit Lakes Middle School for a few years uh, as a second campus. We spent a year at Summit Christian Academy as a second campus. Now we're back to Saturday and Sunday. Our Saturday services run through the weekend of August 21st and 22nd. And then on back to school Sunday, we'll all be together on Sunday again. You say, Christian, how are we going to do that if we don't all fit in this room? We know we've got to have a second place where we can have church. And we believe that this room can be that place this fall. It allows all of our kids to be together in kids ministry, allows all of our volunteers to be together in one place, allows all of our ministry team to be together in one place. If you've not walked the building yet, please feel free to do so. If you walk through the lobby and go to the part of the building that looks like it's been ripped off by a tornado and just kind of follow that hallway through, you'll find yourself in our new space. This is an auditorium that fits about roughly 200 people. And it's our prayer that on August 29th, it's our prayer that about 200 of our people, very specifically at the 930 hour, will say, um, listen, we will, between now and Christmas, um, go to church kind of literally right behind that wall. Uh, It will be just like our Summit Lakes and Summit Christian Academy services were. There'll be a live band. There'll be a live host. Instead of watching a video playback, we think we'll be able to time our services where you'll just be able to beam live into what we're teaching here at 930. But we are calling that building and that service our seven laps ministry venue. You say, why seven laps? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, The last thing that Joshua and the Israelites had to do before they took possession of the promise was take seven laps around the city of Jericho. That was literally their last leg of the journey. Their last spiritual assignment was seven laps, seven more laps, and then you're going to be able to go take all the promise. We've got a 90-day window where we need some people to be able to see what's coming and to take seven laps with us. Inside your bulletin is this little card that says seven laps. If you would be somebody who would be willing in September, October, and November to go to church at 9.30 a.m. in that venue, 
I actually think by the time we get through the fall, we'll probably have it at 9.30 and 11, maybe 8 a.m. also as more people begin to come back to our church once school begins. We just need some people who believe in the vision and who get it and, and who can be patient for 90 days. I've asked all of our elders and their families to be a part of that venue to clear out space. If you'd be willing, that would be huge. Our goal is over the next month to have 200 people sign up if we don't get that. Um, if a staff member at our church has your phone number, they're probably going to call you personally and say, hey, we need a couple more families. Will you go? So you can fill this card out, drop it in the box before you leave. If you didn't grab a bulletin, you can text journey seven laps to 47, 47, 47. Um, one more leg of the journey. One more leg of the journey before we move across. I don't know about you. I'm so excited. Cannot wait to be in our new home so our church can all be together. We've not really been able to do, to do that since August of 2016 in Summit Lakes Middle School. So exciting days ahead, but we need your help to finish the final leg of the journey. We're in Matthew chapter 8 this month. Here's what we're learning in Matthew chapter 8. We're trying to learn some key lessons of faith that we need to help us follow a teacher named Jesus whose teaching has captured our hearts. So we're teaching through the book of Matthew. We just spent 31 weeks in 111 verses in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Three chapters, 111 verses, 31 messages. Learning the teaching of Jesus. And when we got done with the teaching of Jesus, we, like the people of Israel 2,000 years ago, said, that's amazing, I want to follow him. But we're finding out that that's difficult. So if you were to ask Matthew, now that we've heard Jesus teaching, we want to follow him, how do we do it? Matthew would say, you've got to build a strong faith. You've got to learn how to flex your faith muscles because you can't follow Jesus without faith. So in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Matthew's going to introduce us to the first nine miracles that Jesus does in his gospel as a way to say those people who want to follow Jesus' teaching, but they think it's too hard, if they follow Jesus closely enough, their faith will begin to grow. And as they see his supernatural power, they'll believe they can follow even in the hard parts of faith. That is the purpose of this series. And here are our goals in Matthew chapter 8 today. Number one, to see the choice that Christians make that makes them different. The choice that Christians make that makes them different. It's going to be a choice that will take tremendous faith and a choice that has tremendous reward. It is a choice that will not be applauded by culture but it will be a choice that leaves Jesus amazed. So we're going to see the choice that Christians make that make them different from everyone else. We're also going to see, number two, the natural result of salvation. People ask me all the time, especially after weeks like summer youth camp, how do you know if somebody's really serious about their faith? How do you know if they made a real commitment or if it was just emotional? One, I don't know that you can know that without watching for a lifetime, but there are some marks of true Christianity that followers of Jesus will kind of have in their life. And probably we're going to see one of the truest marks of people who have really given their life to Jesus today. We're going to be able to say, have I given my life to Jesus? If I have, it's going to be something that I want to do. So we're going to begin to see the natural result of salvation. Before we ever read scripture at our church, we always ask God to get our hearts ready to receive it. So would you just bow your heads with me quickly? Take a deep breath as we get ready to lean in today. In two prayers, one, a prayer of confession. Just ask God to remove anything from your heart that might keep you from hearing. And then ask God to speak to your heart. That's the goal. God, we confess that uh, between today and the last time we were in church, so much life happened that our hearts can get really clouded, really cluttered, maybe closed. So we ask that you'd open up our hearts again, and then we pray that you'd speak to them. Give us enough faith today to allow Jesus to have total control of our lives and show us what the natural result of being touched by you looks like as we live 
our faith life and our world. That's our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 17 today say this. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom are going to be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go. Let it be done just as you believe that it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and he healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmity and he bore our diseases. Listen, in case you think today, that Jesus is not aware of how you're hurting or that Jesus doesn't care that you're hurting. Let this text give you the comfort that Jesus knows, cares, and he wants to help. You may be sitting in here today thinking something like this. Christian, if there were a line of everyone in the room today who needed something from Jesus, because of who I am and how I've lived my life and what I have going on, I'd be at the back of the line like, Probably Jesus can and will help a lot of people sitting in the church service today, but probably probably not me because of what I'm going through. You need to understand Jesus came specifically for you and what you're dealing with. See, in Matthew chapter 8, we've seen Jesus heal a leper. We've watched him heal a, a servant of a centurion, a slave, and we watched him heal an aging mother-in-law. These are people that the religious elite 2,000 years ago would have put at the back of the line, but Jesus moved them to the front of the line because Jesus starts at the end of the line. And if you're here today thinking, because of what I'm going through, because of decisions I made, because of what someone has done to me, I feel like I'm at the back of the line spiritually. You need to understand Jesus starts at the end of the line and he works his way forward. And if you're here and you're hurting, we're here for you. Jesus cares about you and our church cares about you. You know, we never have a Sunday service that we don't end with a prayer team at the front of our stage. And that prayer team does not leave the room until everyone is gone. Their sole purpose of coming to church Sunday morning at Journey is to pray with people, cry with people, talk with people, answer questions, to care for hurting people. And we normally, a team of us will stand here until the auditorium is totally empty. And then we'll kind of look at each other like, is it, is it fine to leave? Does anyone else need anything from our church today. We also have a team of people in the lobby area, in the Next Steps area, who serve the exact same purpose. They're here to help if you are hurting. We have a discipleship tracks ministry that helps people grow in their faith. The third kind of track in our discipleship ministry is called the Life Track, and part of that Life Track is for people dealing with hard things in their life that they need Jesus to help them with. We have groups that meet on Monday night called care groups that very specifically work with people who are walking through divorce or maybe years ago went through a divorce, but they've not walked through it yet called divorce care. We have a class called grief share for people who've lost someone close to them and they've not been able to move forward. We have a celebrate recovery ministry for people who've dealt with abuse or addiction, or they're just struggling with difficult things that they can't get through on their own. We have a financial peace university class for people who say, my life is good except for my finances and they are ruining everything. Like we are a church if you're hurting, who's here for you. 
We won't leave today until you have got what you need from us because we are a church that represents Jesus, and that's Jesus. He starts at the end of the line, not the front of the line. So if you think I'm the last person who Jesus would want to help, you're actually the first person that he would want to talk to today. And you need to know that because he wants to help you have faith to believe that. As we look at lessons in faith and we try to grow in our faith today, we're going to see two things. One, we're going to see authority recognizing authority. We're going to see authority recognizing authority. So as we enter today's text, there's a Roman soldier, centurion, who needs Jesus' help because he has a servant who's sick. So he goes to Jesus and basically says, Jesus, will you help? And Jesus says, yes. But it's not the healing that's the lesson. That, that, like, that's kind of the subplot. Someone being healed of a terrible disease that's paralyzed him is the subpoint of today's message. The conversation is the lesson of faith today. Not that someone was healed, but what someone said to Jesus that Jesus said, This is a faith lesson that everyone needs to understand. So centurion came to Jesus, got a sick servant. Jesus said, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. That one, come, he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those who were following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He basically said, did you see this guy? Did you hear this guy? I've never met anybody like him. It's interesting. We're going to look at the words amazed and authority that we saw a few weeks ago, but now we see him in a different context. But before we do that, let's meet the person that Jesus is talking to. He's a centurion. A centurion is one of 60 leaders in a Roman legion that leads a century or a hundred soldiers. A Roman legion was made up of 6,000 soldiers. It would have 60 kind of generals who each led 100. So this is someone who, who oversaw a, an, an army of 100 men. He had authority over 100 men in his army, battalion, division. But he also probably had at least one, if not three, legion commanders above him. So this was somebody who had authority, who served under authority, who understood authority. And these guys, I didn't know this until I started getting ready for this text in Matthew chapter 8. These guys are pretty special in Scripture. Wasn't aware of it, but as I began to study it, I thought, that's interesting. The historian William Barclay, who is a, a, not only a history scholar but a Bible scholar, said centurions were the long-serving, regular full-time soldiers of the Roman army. They were responsible for the discipline of their regiment, and they were the cement which held the army together. They were the finest men in the Roman army. Every centurion mentioned in the New Testament is mentioned with honor. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. So I went and looked him up. There's seven. There was the centurion at the cross who, when he saw Jesus die, says, surely this, surely this was the son of God. There was the, the first non-Jewish person to receive the Holy Spirit and become a follower of Jesus. His name was Cornelius. He lived in Caesarea. He was a centurion. There was a centurion who recognized Paul's Roman citizenship, getting ready to beat Paul. And Paul said, are you allowed to hit me without any kind of trial because I'm a Roman citizen? He said, how'd you get your citizen? I, citizenship, I bought mine. And Paul said, I was born into mine. And he not only didn't beat Paul, but he protected Paul from people who did want to beat him. There was the centurion who protected Paul from an assassination attempt. Paul's nephew came and said, somebody wants to kill my uncle Paul. Can you help him? And he said, yeah, we'll make sure and take care of him. There was a centurion who Felix ordered to look after Paul in Caesarea when people were trying to make attempts on his life. There was a centurion who sailed with Paul to Rome and told everyone on the boat, you're going to do whatever Paul says because we trust in his God. And then, of course, there was a centurion at Capernaum that we read about today. 
A lot of history scholars believe that every one of these centurions became not only followers of Jesus, but protectors of Christianity and those in the first generation who were moving towards Christianity. Not something that I knew that was kind of fascinating to me. But as I began to study centurions, these were special leaders of men because they often led groups of a hundred soldiers from different countries that spoke different languages with different social status. Some were paid to be there. They were hired assassins. Some were forced to be there. They were slaves. Some were conquered people. And this centurion had to get this group of a hundred men together, some of them who hated Rome, most of them who didn't speak the same language, some who were being paid and some who were being forced. And he had to figure out a way to get them to move all in the same direction. And if you've studied the history of the Roman Empire, the Roman army usually moved in the same direction. These guys were tremendous leaders of men. And it looks like it's because they cared about their people. Because this centurion comes to Jesus, and in the word that is used in the Greek New Testament, it appears that it was not his servant, but the child of a servant. He literally says, I have a slave whose child is sick. Can you help me? Now, Roman centurions were allowed if any slaves under their care became sick, to discard them because they could not help them in any way. Yet here's someone who doesn't take the permission granted to him by his government, but he has some kind of morality given to him by God. And he asked Jesus, my slave's kid is sick. Can you help? We see he has an incredible heart. Luke, in Luke chapter 7, gives us this exact same story, tells us a little bit more about the man. We find out that Jesus and the man don't actually speak. In Luke chapter 7, we see a group of Jewish leaders went on behalf of the Roman centurion and said, can you help this guy? Because he loves Israel and he's been really good to us. He loves the Jewish people. He has built us a synagogue. For those of you who have been to Capernaum with me, the first century synagogue um, that you can see the foundational base of in uh, Capernaum was a pretty impressive place. He built them a pretty impressive building to go to church in. They said he loves us. He built us a synagogue. He's treated us really well. You... He needs your help. And as Jesus said, was on the way and said, all right, I'll help him, he sent another group of friends that said, don't come inside my house. I'm not worthy to have you inside my house. He probably knew that a Jewish rabbi was not even allowed to walk inside the house of a Gentile. And so he didn't even have to deal with that tension. He told his friends, tell him that he doesn't even have to come in the house because I understand who he is and how he works. I have authority. I understand how authority works. And I believe this man has authority over everything in life. Just tell him to say the word. That's all that I need. I just need his authority in my life. If he will give me his authority, I'll have everything that I need spiritually. And Jesus said, that's amazing. That's amazing. We see these words authority and amaze. Now, these words were just used about Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Now they're used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Remember the context, 111 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. 110 and 111 say this. The people finished hearing his message and they were like, that's amazing. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The crowds were amazed at Jesus and and his teaching because it appeared to have authority. Now Jesus is amazed at someone in the crowd because they have recognized his authority. We already met in Matthew chapter 8, a leper. We would say that the leper saw the heart of Jesus, but the centurion saw the lordship of Jesus. Lordship is not a word we use very much in the Christian church these days. And I think it's probably the primary problem with the Christian church these days. We don't use the word because we don't follow the concept. 
Lordship means Jesus is in charge of everything. And a lot of us like Jesus to be Savior because the whole forgiveness thing is attractive. The hell thing is scary. The heaven thing is pleasing. It's like, let's, let's let Jesus do those things. But to let Jesus be in charge of everything, that seems to be a little bit of a stretch. That's what's called Lordship. But this Roman centurion who was in charge of this town twice calls Jesus master. In Matthew 8, 6 through 8, the English word we use is Lord. The Greek word would be master. Master, he says. My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Verse 7, Jesus said, you want me to come and help him? He said, master, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. A Roman centurion with authority over 100 troops. A Roman legion who ruled all of Palestine, Israel at the time. A Roman soldier who led the entire town that they were in goes to Jesus and said, regardless of who I am, you are the master of all of life. Can you help me? The leper saw the heart of Jesus. The centurion saw the lordship of Jesus. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It was not a faith to be healed. It was a faith to be led. It was a faith to surrender. And I believe it's actually harder to have a faith to be led than a faith to be healed. Because when we get the cancer diagnosis, we all have faith to be healed. Jesus, please help. We all want to be healed. It's having the faith to be led in areas that aren't going wrong with us and with us in control. That we're like, Jesus, I don't know if I want to give this one to you. It's going okay right now. Would you say that Jesus is master of every area of your life? Because the centurion did not need to be healed. He wasn't even sick. But his show of telling Jesus, I understand you are the master and have authority over everything. I just need you to use your authority in my life for good. Jesus said that is amazing faith. He called it such great faith. I believe it takes more faith to give Jesus authority in every area of your life than it does to ask him to heal just one. The question for us today, if we want, if we want today to grow our faith and our faith walk, the question today is what area of your life have you not yet given Jesus authority in? You know who knows the answer to that question? Not me. You don't know the answer to that question in my life. I don't know the answer to that question in your life. But you know who may know the answer to that question in your life? What areas of your life have you not yet given Jesus authority in? The angels. Do you know that there, it's very possible that there are a group of angels who watch your life to see what Christianity and faith looks like? Peter writing to the church gives us an interesting verse in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says, concerning salvation, the angels love to watch people live out their faith because they, angels are not able to be saved because they were created beings. They were created to worship God. So like they don't repent. They don't follow Jesus. They, they don't have free will. They don't get to surrender their lives to Jesus. So Peter says, concerning salvation, like angels love to kind of like watch your life because it kind of it shows them what choosing to love Jesus looks like. If that is true in that context... That means you've got a group of angels watching your life. If I were to ask them, hey, what areas of Joe's life has he not given authority to Jesus in? 
what would they quickly answer because they watch it and see it? Like we do sermon-based small groups. Like some of us, we, like we hear the sermon, then we go away and talk about it. Like the angels do people-based small groups. Like there's, a, like there's a Susie small group in heaven and like they gather on Sunday night and just talk about your life for the week. Like, like hey, did you see what Susie did? Like in that area, that must be what it looks like to give authority to Jesus. And this one, she's still struggling there. She's still struggling with what Pam said to her. Man, she's not forgiven Pam yet. Like, Susie's struggling here with Pam. I always use names of people that I hope are not sitting in the auditorium. If you're like, I hate Pam. Like, if you're Susie and Pam did something to you, I'm sorry. I was not intended to, like, pick a scab there. Like, there are a group of angels watching your life to see what it looks like to choose to give Jesus authority. What areas in your life have they seen you choose to do that? And what areas of your life are they still waiting? Because they're watching you hold back just a little bit. Have you given Jesus authority? One of my favorite verses in Scripture, especially when you simplify it, is Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You say, Christian, what does that mean? Does that mean if you're not afraid of God, you're not wise? That's not what it means at all. Let me simplify this verse for you. It means this. The beginning of wisdom is to know this. There is a God and I'm not him. That's what that verse means. You cannot, you cannot find wisdom. You will not even seek wisdom until one day you wake up and say, there is a God, but it's not me. At that point, your journey begins. There are some people, by the way, who have not reached this point. There is a God and it's not me. Because based on how they live their life, they are still in control of everything. So they might mentally say they believe this, but practically this has not played out in their life yet. So the lesson in faith that we learn from the centurion, everybody who knows that they aren't God, chooses to live under somebody else's authority. And when you choose to be your own authority, you've not yet reached even the beginning of wisdom of realizing there's a God, but it's not me, so I better figure it out. Now, the culture of our country repels from this lesson of faith. I'm not in control, so I'm going to let somebody else make decisions based on my behalf. That is not how we do it, in case you haven't like turned on the TV lately. We are not a people that sits back and says, whatever the authority says, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm going to do. Just whatever they say. That's not how we do it in most areas of life, but it's how Christians are supposed to do it spiritually. Whatever God says. I don't know. Whatever, like, whatever God says. What are you going to do with your money? Whatever God says. What are you going to do with people who hurt your feelings? Whatever God says. What are you going to do in your marriage when it gets hard? Whatever God says. How are you going to parent your kids? Whatever God says. The beginning of wisdom is realizing there's a God, but it's not me. Somebody figure out who he is and what he says. But this is not, this is not us. This is not America. But this is the one decision that sets Christians apart from Americans. We know we're not in control and we let somebody else have total control. At least we're supposed to. Look at what Tim Keller says in his great book, Reason for God. He says, what happens if you eliminate everything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have 
a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship or genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or a marriage, will you know that you've gotten a hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It's the precondition for it. So in your life, in every area, when someone says, hey, what do you think? Do you say, I've really given up control of thinking in that area? Whatever God says. See, at Journey, we, we believe this is what God says, and we believe this is how God wants us to live our life, and we believe this will lead to our best life, and most fulfilling life, and most transformed life, and eternal life. Like, that's, that's what we believe. Have you chosen to give God authority in your life yet? It's the one decision that separates Christians from everyone else. I am not in charge. I don't make decisions. Whatever God says. Jesus said that's what gets you invited to his table. He said it this way in Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus heard the centurion, he was amazed and he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel who thinks like this. I say to you that many are going to come from the east and the west and are going to take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There was a belief among the Jews that at the end times that the Messiah would hold this huge banquet and they would feast on behemoth and Leviathan. You say, what were those? Those were the largest land animal, largest sea creature. If you would have asked a Jew 2,000 years ago, what do you believe is going to be served at like the end times, like supper with the Messiah, they would have said like the elephant and the blue whale. And we're thinking, whoo, like will there be a salad bar too? Because like that doesn't sound very good. But they didn't really believe they were going to be eating an elephant and a blue whale. They just basically said God is going to provide so much food that they'll never run out. The animals will be like the, the banquet will be so big that the food will never run out. And the Jews thought if I'm Jewish, I get invited to that. And Jesus says here, that's not how it works. You don't get invited to that because you're Jewish. There are going to be people who come from the east and west. He was saying people who are not even Israeli, who adopt the faith of Jewish leaders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be people, in, the people invited to the banquet are going to be people who choose to give Jesus authority. Like there will be an invitation sent out, but he said the people I'm going to choose are going to choose. The people chosen are going to be those who choose to give Jesus authority. And yes, there will be some Jewish people there, but it's not being Jewish that gets you there. It's choosing to give Jesus authority that gets you there. So let me ask you again. Are you an authority who recognizes authority? Have you chosen to give Jesus authority? Are you choosing to follow him? Because if you choose to follow and you choose to serve, then you've kind of, you, you've got the, highlights of today's message because number one is authority recognizing authority and number two is saved by Jesus to serve Jesus. You could say it this way, saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. Matthew chapter 8, it says, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and immediately began to wait on him. So this healing is different than the other two in in Matthew chapter 8. You said, in what way? It was in the house. First two were very public. This one was very private. And I think that's because of this reason. Sometimes what Jesus does for you really is just between you and Jesus. And that's what some of you need today. Like you need a private moment with Jesus. Because if Jesus, like his church was emptying and Jesus met you in the parking lot and said, I've come to help you today with, you would be like, no, 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 don't don't say it out loud. Don't say it out loud. I don't want everyone to hear that. 
this over here. <laughs> Sometimes we need the miracle in the house. It doesn't need to be on the street. It doesn't need to be publicly proclaimed. Sometimes we need Jesus to just get real close to our soul and just us and him in the bedroom. We just need him to give us a touch. And some of you today say, man, like I need Jesus to do something to me, but I'd just be afraid for people to know. He understands when he needs to come in the house and spend some time with you. But you've got to be open to take his hand. He took her by the hand and he healed her. Sometimes what Jesus does for you is really just between the two of you. Peter's mother-in-law probably had malaria. Around the Sea of Galilee used to be a lot of swampland. Even 100 years ago when the original Zionists began to return from Europe to what was then known as Palestine, they moved around the Sea of Galilee and dozens of people died of malaria. Not until they were able to figure out how to drain all those swamps and build it up with good land was it even like healthy to live around the Sea of Galilee like it is today. So probably she was laying in bed sick with malaria and Jesus went in the house. It wasn't a public proclamation. There wasn't an audience. He just went in. And he had an intimate moment with her that changed her life. Her healing was private, but watch this. Her service was not. See, private moments of faith are supposed to lead to a public life of serving. Her private healing resulted in very public service. And James, Jesus' little brother, actually said, like, when you're trying to show people that your faith is real... You got to show them by what you're doing. You got to show them by how you serve people. He says, show me your faith without deeds. You're really not able to do it. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Like, I want the world to see my faith is genuine. The way that I serve is one of the things that points to a genuine faith. Now, this statement, this statement is really interesting. Not the statement, but the circumstances surrounding the statement. Because James was the little brother of Jesus who we are told did not follow Jesus until after his crucifixion and resurrection, which makes total sense because when, like, when you were nine years old, if your 11-year-old brother came into the room and were like, hey, I'm God, you would be like, sure you are. Um, but then if you went to his funeral, buried him, and three days later he walked back into your room, you'd be like, okay, like you have my attention. So 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. He became this leader in the Jerusalem church. And scholars believe that either the book of James or the book of Galatians was the first New Testament book actually written. And James quotes or alludes to the Sermon on the Mount more than any other book in the New Testament. But Matthew had not written it down yet. Say, how'd that happen? He had to have been there listening. You say, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus. Nobody was a watcher. And you have some people in your life who are not followers of Jesus yet. But they're watching you follow Jesus, trying to figure out if it's real. And they may not even come to faith until you're gone. But once you're gone, they may plagiarize your statements of faith that you said the whole time they were watching you because they now realize that it's real. Do you show people your faith by how you serve? James says, try to show someone faith without serving. They can't see it but when they watch you getting your hands involved in the work of Jesus, even if they're just watching, even though they don't believe yet, you'll have their attention and maybe Jesus will have their heart. Saved people serve people. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul told the church at Ephesus, this is how this is a process. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not by works and no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. You've been invited to the banquet table with Jesus so you can have your heart changed so that your hands can get busy serving in the world. Saved people serve people. The lesson in faith that we would learn is this. One of our primary responses to being touched by Jesus is that we get up and we start serving him. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with serving Jesus? If you say, I wouldn't even know where to begin, you have to go to growth track. At the top of our discipleship funnel is a four-step process that we call growth track that meets every week during the 930 service. If you just gave it four weeks, you would know who God is, how God has created you, what you like to do, what you're good at, and how you can do that at our church. I guarantee those things will happen if you give us four hours in one month. I guarantee it. Saved people serve people. Are you serving? You say, I'm not. Does that mean I'm not saved? No, but if you are saved, you need to start serving. There's actually only one condition in Scripture that says you can be saved and not served, and that's if you're tired and you need a year of rest. But even the year of rest in Scripture, the sabbatical year, is one year. And after 365 days, you re-engage again. You say, well, I had a bad experience in a church. There's nothing in this book that says you're allowed to opt out of serving because you had a bad experience in church. So I had a bad experience at Journey, and I just don't know that I could ever serve at Journey again. Then you have to find a church that you can serve in because saved people serve people. It is our testimony to the world that what we have inside of us is real. Saved people serve people. So like this, like if you're not serving, enjoy the last month of summer, and it's time to, re, it's time to engage or re-engage. Saved people serve people. That's just the way that it works. But I love how Jesus closes. I want to read you two verses, and I want to take you to the Sea of Galilee to help you understand what's going on here. It says, when evening came. If you still have your Bibles open, you can circle those two words. So we read in the book of Mark that everything that happened in Matthew 8 happened on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, people were not able to travel but but a few hundred yards from their house. So most people who wanted to get to Jesus on the Sabbath had to wait till the sun went down so they wouldn't have to violate the Sabbath. So Saturday as the sun sets, the crowds now flock to Jesus because they're allowed to travel to him from different places. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. Now, let me tell you what was happening here. If and when you go to Israel with us, We usually go every year as a church. It would be my goal that it would be on your bucket list to go. We actually somehow have three trips scheduled in 2022 because 2020 got canceled, 2021 got canceled, and we already had one in 2022. So we'll we'll see how all that works out. But when we go, we'll spend the most nights in Tiberias in Galilee. And I haven't stayed in the specific hotel for a while, but there's one hotel on the Sea of Galilee that is built over ancient hot springs. If you can picture Yellowstone and hot springs, literally you go into the basement and into the bedrock of the basement, this hotel is built over these ancient hot springs more than 2,000 years old that are always between 105 and 115 degrees. And you can go and like sit in this natural hot tub provided by God at the end of the night. It's, it's a fascinating thing. These pools have been there for over 2,000 years. In the ancient world, people thought they provided healing for people. So people would bring folks from all over the Middle East to the shores of the Sea of Galilee who were hurting to find healing. And they would put them in the pools thinking these pools could heal them. So I want you to picture this. People knew they were hurting. People desired healing. They found out there was a place where that could be done. They took them, they put them in the pools, and it wasn't working. Yet word slowly begins to trickle down the shore. Capernaum is 10 miles from Tiberias there's a guy in Capernaum who can heal you. 
They have to wait till the sun sets because you're not allowed to walk 10 miles on the Sabbath day. But the sun sets and literally this hospital of people who came because they're hurting and they need healing realized that a place could not heal them, but a person could. And they worked their way to Jesus. I say that for this reason. All of us have people in our life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses, in our schools, that play sports with our kids. We all have people who are hurting. They know they're hurting. And they want more than anything to be healed because they're tired of hurting. And they're looking for the hot pools that the world offers. They're trying to find a place that will give them healing. But we know that healing is in a person, not a place. And his name is Jesus. This, this narrative that we read today begins and ends with the exact same thing. Somebody connecting to Jesus who would have never connected with him on their own. Someone who needed to have Jesus brought to them and someone who needed to be brought to Jesus. But two people who wouldn't get there on their own. As we think about moving into this building next door, we will have missed the point if we just think it's for us. If we move into this building and it's not filled with hurting people who would never find Jesus on their own, but they're hurting, they know they're hurting, they're looking for healing. If it's not filled with people that we are bringing to lay in front of Jesus, we have missed the point. It'll be great for us without them. I mean, but we're not building it so that we don't have to do five services on a weekend. We're not building it so we don't have to watch on a screen. People do that all over and it appears to be successful in some places. We're not doing it so that we don't have to have 15 Christmas services, although that'll be nice. Like, like I'm hoping to like actually be awake on Christmas day for the first time since 2011. Um, that's not why we're building it. We're building it because there's hurting people all over our community who are trying to figure out what pool will bring them refreshment. And it's not a pool, it's a person. His name is Jesus. And if we can help them work to Jesus, Jesus, who reached out and touched a leper so that he could have spiritual community, Jesus, who left his spiritual community in heaven to help us have spiritual community on earth, Jesus, who healed a suffering servant of a centurion, only to a year and a half later become a suffering servant himself on the cross, Jesus, who took Peter's mother-in-law by the hand so that she could stand up and live on mission, even though he would have to lay down and die on mission to fulfill his purpose. Jesus, if you know him, if you've come to him, if you have him, if you've given him authority, if you serve him, if you bring people to him, we are the church he came to build. And he said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. How are you doing with Jesus? As we reflect on that question, let's pray and just think for a minute. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. Jesus, he always provides us with what we need spiritually through his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. Jesus, heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but hearts are open. What could an angel tell you today? about where you still need to trust Jesus enough to give him authority? If you had a comment, like if you really have an angel that watches your life and you had a conversation with him, where would they tell you they see you holding back? Or do you have a God who's not allowed to disagree with you in any way? 
If you know some of those areas, just acknowledge them before Jesus and ask him to help you. Who do you know who's going to have to be brought before Jesus because they will not, maybe they cannot come on their own? Either Jesus is going to have to go to them or they're going to have to come to him, but they're not going to get there on their own. Do you know even one person like that? Will you pray for him right now? Just right now, ask God to show you how you're supposed to help connect them with Jesus. And if somehow maybe you're that person, somebody invited you today because none of the pools have brought your soul the healing that it needs. You think you're at the end of the line, but Jesus starts at the end of the line. Jesus loves you. He lived for you. He died so your sin could be forgiven, so you could be close to him and right with God. And if you've never received his invitation to follow him, to trust him, to be loved by him, you can do that today through prayer. All you have to do is open your heart and say to the God of heaven, I need you. If you've never done that, you can do that today. All you need to do is say a simple prayer. You don't have to pray it out loud, but from your heart to heaven, maybe you could pray something like this. You could repeat it after me. You could just say, Jesus, I need you. Just repeat it after me. Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurts. Lead me into the future. Today, I surrender my life to your leadership and I ask for your salvation. I will commit to follow you. If you just prayed with me in just a second, Danielle will be on the stage closing out our service and she'll tell you how you can let us know of your spiritual decisions so that we can pray for you. If you'd like, we'd love to pray with you, give you some resources to help you on your new spiritual journey, but we want you to know we celebrate the spiritual decision that you made today. Christians, if we can learn where to give Jesus authority, if we can learn where to serve, if we can learn who needs help, and then we can act on that. We can be the church that Jesus left the world. Jesus, that's who we want to be. So as individuals and corporately together, help us to be that for our community. We know they're hurting. We know they need it. Help us to figure out how to get Jesus to them or them to Jesus so their hearts and lives can be changed. That's our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.